0: Please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. Earlier this week, I was reading through the Psalms when I was struck by one particular verse. The verse was Psalm 17 verse 15 in Psalm 17 David is bemoaning the afflictions caused by the wicked he observes how they close their heart to pity how they speak arrogantly against God how they tear the righteous apart meanwhile he's praying to God noting that he's been careful to obey God's commands he even says verse 3 you have tried my heart You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. In short, he says to God, I am blameless. I've done everything I can to follow you. As the psalm then builds, he eventually erupts, with this cry to God for deliverance, declaring, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. It's a rather interesting statement. David observes that these... Men appear to have set their hope in this world. He calls them men of the world whose portion is in this life. They seem to live for this life only. And you know what? It kind of works. They aim for earthly success with virtually no thought of God and they get exactly what they're aiming for. Their plans aren't frustrated Instead, David observes, you fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied and they leave their abundance to their infants. It's a feeling that anyone who's attempted to follow God for very long can sympathize with at times. You choose to Heed God's commands. You don't cheat. You don't steal. You don't misrepresent the truth. You don't smash the metaphorical glass and try to grab and run with whatever you can out of life. Instead, you commit yourself to following God's commands while trusting Him to provide for you. And as you look around at your competitors, your peers, who are not committed to the same principles that you are, what do you see? They seem to prosper. They're succeeding. To a certain extent, they cut corners. They take the shortcut to prosperity, and it works. They don't get lost along the way. They find exactly what they're looking for. That's what David observes as well. What's fascinating is how he responds to this observation. Again, he's crying out for deliverance. He's telling God... Do something about all this. Verse 2, he says, From your presence let my vindication come. You might think that this is sour grapes. But what does that look like for David? What does it mean to be vindicated? To be rewarded according to his faithfulness? Is David jealous? Is he wanting God to take their prosperity, the the prosperity of the wicked, and give it to him instead? Is that what vindication looks like? No, listen to what David says. Listen to how he comforts himself as he sees their success. He notes their prosperity, and then he says, verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness just so you know i don't think that's a literal waking that david is talking about there when he says just two verses earlier that the wicked have their portion in this life i tend to think that he's responding this by noting where the portion of the righteous is and it's not in this life it's in the next this is what struck me about this verse what i find so fascinating about it david doesn't look upon the earthly prosperity of the wicked with envy He's not sitting there grumbling at God, wondering, how come you're blessing them and not me, God? Instead, he's saying, oh, God, they can have it. They can have it. Their portion is in this life only. But as for me, I shall behold your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. His one consuming desire in life is to behold the beauty and glory of God. And if that means he has to experience a bit of suffering along the way, if it means he must be patient and wait for the Lord to reveal his glory, then so be it. The wait will be worth it. The payoff will make every bit of suffering seem like a mere trifle by comparison. This is a sentiment that's shared by all God's people. The world may not understand it. Those whose portion is in this life are only going to have a hard time understanding many of the actions and thought processes of a people who have been so radically transformed by the hope of the gospel. But for those who have faith, meaning for those who truly believe in the goodness and wisdom of God, Moreover, for those who believe that this God then offered himself up in their place to die for their sins, so that being forgiven of their sins, they might be offered eternal life in his presence freely. For them, this all makes perfect sense. There can be no greater joy than knowing and beholding the maker of every good and perfect gift. And to know that this all occurs in heaven, it means that this life is forfeit. Who cares? What you take in this world. You can have it. For they're awaiting a better hope. A greater inheritance. A richer reward. One which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. For these, there's only one real use for a life such as this. And that's to use it as a vehicle for expressing gratitude. To their great and wonderful God for all the precious gifts he's given them. This isn't to say that they can't find joy in this life. They can. But that's not really the goal that they have in mind. There's a sense in which they understand that true joy, ultimate joy, that it isn't isn't going to take place here. Not while there's so much evil and injustice in the world. This is not the place where they're going to behold with an unveiled face the glory of their God. And so fixing their hope on their future reward. They see it as their privilege to use what's left of this life to give praise and honor to God in this world. Because if this life can't be used for that, then what's the point? Why keep on living in such an inferior world if not to proclaim the glories of God to those who have yet to share this hope? Why not just get on with what they already know to be a far, far richer inheritance? To quote the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the thinking of every biblically-minded Christian and as you might imagine, it will completely upend the priorities in their life. The problem is that while this should be the way the Christian thinks, I mean, how can you not live this way if the things we say we believe are real the problem is that still that doesn't mean that these christians always do think this way after all we do still live in a world that doesn't share this vision for the future the vast vast portion of humanity has not had their mind transformed in this way their hope is still in this life only and so they live that way and it's very normal for the christian as they live in this world to think that this is all very normal that the way people should think is according to the same set of priorities that we find in the world at large in fact sometimes the sheer volume of the world's thinking can be so substantial that even the christian may have trouble realizing that there's even another way of thinking they can only hear the one tune so they keep beat with that rhythm instead of according to the rhythm that's been established by Christ and when this happens it can make the scriptures very confusing for the Christian after all the scriptures were written by men like David men like Paul men who so hoped in the next life and who so loved God that they desired to give the whole of this life in service to him You think of Hebrews 11, for instance, what people sometimes refer to as the Hall of Faith. And what you discover with all the major figures of the Scripture, from Abel to Abraham to Moses to all the prophets, is that they did what they did, believing that they were citizens of a better country. That is a heavenly one. And so this book, which is a testimony and description of their faith, it's naturally going to conform to their priorities, to their way of thinking. God spoke through them to explain this way of thinking to the world. It's important that you understand this as we come to this morning's text. This is not a passage that's going to make sense to one whose portion is in this world. It's not going to make sense to the one whose priorities are still very much shaped by their desire to serve themselves, Instead of give glory to God. To them, this passage isn't just confusing, it's downright offensive. Nothing about what Paul is going to say is going to make any sense. This means that if you share this way of thinking, if you've allowed the world to shape your perspective on what life is about, about who you are, even about the nature of human relationships, then no matter what your profession in Christ may be, you're not going to accept what I'm about to tell you today. You're going to find it offensive and reject it. The topic for this morning's message for the second week in a row is sex. To be specific, sex in marriage. To be even more specific, the practice of abstinence in marriage. The Corinthians have written to Paul saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And as I explained in last week's message, this is not a statement that's made in a vacuum. It's one that's made in the context of marriage specifically. They're saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Therefore, I'm going to withhold myself from my spouse. Paul's answer to this is to say, verse 5, literally, stop defrauding one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That's really the main command of this passage. He tells the Corinthians... Don't do this. Stop withholding yourself from your spouse. And as I explained in last week's message, the reasons that Paul gives for this command are only going to make sense if you share some of the Corinthians' outlook on this issue. We observed last week that there are all kinds of reasons that a person can have for abstaining from from sex with their spouse. It can come from a feeling of emotional distance. It can come from a fear of rejection or from a negative experience of sex brought on by past sexual abuse. It can come from a desire to control or manipulate one's spouse. It can even come from a general disinterest in sex period. I mean really even for any number of reasons. The Corinthians aren't abstaining for any of these reasons. Instead the reason They're abstaining is because they think the body to be corrupt, that their physical existence is inferior to their spiritual existence that they'll experience after death. And so as a way to anticipate this future state in which Christ says that men and women will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but instead will be like the angels. They think that the best way to anticipate this future existence is by refraining from sex now or at least some of them do. We saw in chapter 6 that some of the Corinthians took the opposite approach. They apparently took this passage as a a way uh, uh, to to mean that the body is uh, bad, that we should therefore engage in sexual immorality. It's all going away. They thought that what we do with our bodies is, is inconsequential since the body is passing away. Regardless, the point is that both parties are actually attempting to live in light of this future state. Meaning they're coming to these conclusions because they really believe that this is what it looks like to live in eternity. They're not being driven to these conclusions out of self-interest. In other words, Paul writes this passage to a people who have been transformed by this heavenly hope. So what does Paul say to this people? What reasons does he provide to encourage them to stop withholding themselves? Let's go ahead and read the passage together and find out. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. I wish that all were as uh, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another." Once again, in this morning's passage, Paul addresses the idea of abstinence in marriage. And although he addresses this topic for a very different reason than what you and I may be accustomed to, that isn't to say that this is not still an incredibly useful passage. After all, although the motives may be different, there's a sense in which the problem that the Corinthians are facing is still very much the sort of problem that so many couples experience in marriage, and that's what is sometimes referred to as the dead bedroom. It's not unheard of for couples to sometimes go months or even years without sex. In fact, it's probably more common than you think. And this in spite of the fact that oftentimes there's still one partner who wants to have sex. This passage not only addresses how to approach that issue, but the implications of what Paul says here even spread much, much further than this. That's because what we discover in this passage is sort of a Christian philosophy or perspective on sex. Basically, why should we engage in sex? What are the goals that we should have in mind as we engage in sex? This all comes out in this passage. And So say you have a Christian couple who is sexually active what this passage does even though it's talking about abstinence is frame that activity from a Christian perspective if I could put it this way what this passage shows us is that sexual sin encompasses more than sex outside of wedlock or sex outside of sex between a man and a woman meaning it's possible to commit a kind of sexual sin within a marriage did you know that? That's partly what we discover here. We learn that it's possible to have a husband and wife who are sexually active with one another and with one another exclusively while either one or both are still guilty of sexual sin. That's sort of interesting, isn't it? What does that look like? What do I mean by that? We're going to find out here. Paul's going to show us. Or suppose you have a couple who is sexually active But their sexual experience is less than satisfying. What's going on there? How can they work at changing that? Again, I think there are principles here that tell us the answer to that question. In fact, throw all of that out the window. Suppose someone is single. Suppose they don't have a spouse. Did you know that even still, this passage has something to say to them about how they can use their sexuality for the glory of God? And note what I'm saying here. I didn't say their singleness. I'm not talking about how they can use their singleness for the glory of God. Paul's going to get to that issue too eventually here in 1 Corinthians 7. What I'm talking about is their sexuality as a single person, as someone who doesn't have a spouse. There are principles here that can help them discern how to use that sexuality for the glory of God. So again, this is an incredibly useful passage with some very broad implications. But in order to get to all of that, we're first going to look at this through the lens of the couple who's in the dead bedroom phase, where one spouse is intentionally withholding themselves from another while their partner still wants to have sex. I said last week that we'd explore this issue from each partner's perspective, spending a week on each one, and we're going to begin this morning by looking first at the one who is withholding themselves from sex. And I think I probably made this fairly clear in last week's message, but I'm not beginning here in order to assign blame or anything like that. I'm not starting here in order to imply, you know, if that's you, you're the one who's really the issue here. You need to get your act in order to fix this. Rather, I'm starting here because that's the flow of this passage. This is who Paul is addressing first. In fact, I think it's fair to say that this is who Paul is addressing primarily. So we're going to start here first. And the next week we'll come back to look at this issue from the perspective of the one who wants to have sex, what principles they need to keep in mind as they interact with their their, uh, withholding spouse. So suppose you're the withholding spouse, suppose you're the one who's reluctant to engage in sex. Uh, That can be in a broader sense, meaning you've been withholding yourself for months or even years, or it can be in a more narrow sense, meaning maybe you're just not in the mood in one particular instance. What would Paul say to you? What exhortations would he give you To encourage you to engage in sexual relationship with your spouse. I think it can be summarized in two interrelated points. The first one is this. Exhortation number one, recognize that withholding yourself from your spouse opens them up to temptation. Once again, you need to recognize that by withholding yourself you are quite possibly opening your spouse up to sexual temptation. Overall, this is, seems to be the larger concern that's driving Paul's instruction in this passage, meaning this is really the foundational reason for why a Christian shouldn't withhold themselves from their spouse. You see it both at the beginning and towards the end of the passage. Verse 2, Paul responds to this Corinthian assertion that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, By saying, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 5, he says again, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited period of time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, he says, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you, the you there being plural, by the way, referring to both partners, because of your lack of self-control. That's an interesting argument. If you're paying attention to the flow of Paul's thought, he's just said in chapter 6 that God does care about what we do with our bodies since the resurrection means that Christ has redeemed our bodies. As he anticipates how this is going to be used by the abstinence crowd, he he exposes the flaw in their thinking. They're going to want to say to Paul, that's right, Paul, Christ has redeemed our bodies. It's just like you said, to engage with a prostitute is to become one flesh with her. It's to submit one's body to someone other than Christ. So it's good for a man not to have any kind of sexual relations with anyone whatsoever, right? No, Paul says. The point, rather, is that sexual immorality, porneia in the Greek, porneia is what's wrong. That's what shouldn't happen. And so if your spouse is struggling with sexual desire, then you should actually engage with them sexually so as not to tempt them into committing porneia. In fact, what's really interesting is that considering that Paul has just discussed the the matter of sexual immorality, porneia, back in chapter 6, you see this word occur in verse 13, for instance, when he says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, porneia that being the case then it's probably not too far of a stretch to think that these passages are connected. Meaning despite what the chapter divisions might imply this is not entirely a new discussion that Paul is picking up here in chapter 7 but rather the continuation of a discussion that started back in chapter 6. And the implication very well may be that the reason why you have some men visiting prostitutes in chapter 6 Is because of what their wives may be doing down in chapter 7. And just so you know, I split it up that way. Wives withholding sex and men desiring it, not to play into some cultural stereotype that men are just naturally more interested in sex than women, but because that's what the actual grammar of this passage implies. Clearly back in chapter 6, verse 16, it's men who Paul envisions as visiting prostitutes. Here in verse 7, the Corinthian assertion is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It may be that it's not the men who are saying this, but the women actually, who are wanting to withhold themselves from their husbands. Paul's answer is to say, verse two, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Again, that's not a verse he writes to encourage a man to have a spouse. It's a verse he writes to encourage the Corinthians to have sex with their spouses. The concern through this passage is how withholding from sex will affect one's spouse not with how it will affect oneself the implication being paul starts by telling the wives actually it's good for each man to have his own wife rather than he be tempted to engage in sexual immorality with another woman i.e prostitutes now regardless of whether or not that's the specific situation that's taking place in corinth The point is still the same. A reluctance to engage in sexual relationship with one's spouse when they clearly still want to have sex is to put them in a situation where they're going to wrestle with sexual temptation. And if you're not careful, they may eventually fall. If you remember, I said last week that many counselors will tell you that infidelity is either the top reason for divorce or close to it. And that not far behind that is sexual incompatibility. Those two concepts can often be interrelated. It's just a matter of order. In some instances, you have a spouse who's sexually frustrated, and so they turn to someone outside the marriage and have an affair in order to fulfill those desires. In other instances, the spouse basically does the exact same thing. They just file the proper paperwork first. They say, that's it, I can't take this anymore, I want to have physical intimacy, and then they file for divorce, and then they have the affair. And in case you're wondering, that is, yes, that is what it is, we'll get there in just a few weeks, but let's just get this out now, sexual frustration is not a sufficient reason for divorce, meaning the one who does this may not be considered guilty of adultery as far as the state is concerned. But as far as God is concerned, it's still adultery. It's still an affair. If you're the one who's withholding themselves, I want you to really think about this for a minute. Is that something that you really want? And before you give me your answer, I want to pause for a moment and consider what I said at the beginning of today's message. I may ask you this question, Is this something you really want? And it's more than possible that you've been so conditioned by the world to think of that question in terms of what brings you satisfaction that you become immediately defensive. You may be thinking to yourself, oh, wait a second, Ryan, that's just the thing. You're guilt-tripping me as if I'm responsible for my spouse's sexual desires. You're telling me that I need to be sensitive about their desires. What about mine? What about mine? Where do I count in all of this? If that's what you're thinking let me just clarify something when i ask you this question is this something you really want with respect to any potential infidelity on the part of your spouse i'm not asking this so much with respect to whether their desires are fulfilled or your desires are fulfilled instead i'm asking it from the perspective of one who because of the gospel has been so transformed in their love for god that the thing they want more than anything else is for God to be glorified? Or if I could put it another way, is this something that God wants? Is this something that he would find pleasing for your spouse to become involved in sexual immorality? Do you understand I'm not attempting to frame this in light of how their infidelity would affect you, all the hurt that it would cause you, I'm framing it in light of how it affects them, and even more than this, how it affects Christ. Do you really want them to take the members of Christ, this body that's been redeemed by Christ, to serve and honor Him, and then join it to a prostitute? I would think the answer to that question is no. Like, forget the whole guilt here and who to assign blame to for just a moment the point I'm trying to make at the moment is simply does that bother you the thought that a member of the body of Christ would take what Christ has redeemed through his blood and drag it through the mud I would think the answer to that question is yes yes it does bother me lately we've been reciting the Lord's prayer at the end of our family devotions to sort of ask God's blessing for our day since uh, we do our devotions around breakfast. Well, as a part of that, we've been discussing the first couple of lines of that prayer. Of course, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. He's showing them what their priorities ought to be in prayer. And what's the very first thing he teaches them to pray for? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Literally, sanctify your name. This is the very first thing that Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. It's their first request, their supreme desire. It's that God would be honored as God, that he would receive the praise and glory that he's worthy of. The second request, of course, then dovetails with this desire. They're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Essentially, they're to pray for God's rule to extend over the earth. Meaning, not only are they to pray for the return of the Son, not only are they to pray for the repentance of the lost, but they are to pray even for obedience in the church. This is partly what it means to pray, thy will be done. is to pray for obedience among God's people. These are supposed to be the most fundamental desires of the Christian. And it reflects a heart that recognizes that the true tragedy of sin is not the judgment that comes upon us for our sin, since that's just. Rather, the true tragedy of sin is the dishonor that's attributed to God because of our sin. Because that's unjust. I would think that if you're a Christian, then when I ask you, does this bother you? That a member of the body of Christ would take... But Christ has redeemed through his blood and drag it through the mud, then your answer would be yes. Yes, that does bother me. And if the answer to that question is, yes, it does bother me. If it's no, I don't want that for my spouse. Then you can at least understand the reasoning behind the first of these two exhortations. What Paul is doing here in this first exhortation is tapping into that concern that every Christian has for the glory of God. And he's telling the withholding spouse, there's a risk here that if you continue to withhold yourself, that Christ is going to be dishonored. Now, just so we're clear here, let's go ahead and get this out in the open, right? By that, is Paul implying that if your spouse does fall in that scenario, then it's your fault? Meaning, is he attempting to assign blame with this statement? No. We'll dig into this a little more next week as we discuss this passage from the perspective of the one who wants to have sex, but in no way is Paul implying that sex is some kind of need which a person has a right to. You know, sort of like you have politicians who'll say, uh, every person has a right to health care, and by that they mean that since it's a right, It's the government's responsibility to provide for it. That's not what Paul is implying here. He would not say that sex is a right in the sense that it's someone else's responsibility to provide it to someone or else all bets are off. That they're no longer culpable for their actions at that point. No, it's a gift from God and one to be enjoyed freely with thanksgiving. But it's not a need. It's not something that they must have or something that in the grand scheme of things is owed to them. So let's make this very clear, because like I said last week, this is how passages like this one tend to get abused. Paul is not implying in this text that if a Christian falls to temptation because their spouse is withholding themselves, that it's their spouse's fault for withholding. No, the one who falls to sexual temptation ultimately falls due to their own lack of self-control. They're culpable for their own sin. But what Paul is saying is that if you withhold yourself from your spouse there's still a risk that they're going to fall to this temptation. And he's assuming that that's a concern for you. He's assuming that as Christians we don't want the name of God dishonored. We don't want our brothers and sisters engaged in sexual sin considering chapter 6 that it is so painful and unprofitable for them. That seems to be the Corinthians' concern. Again, like I said last week, their applications may be sort of twisted, but I don't know that you can say the same about their motives. There's a lot going right in their motives. And that's being expressed here with this assumption that what they truly desire is for Christ to be honored in their members, that they would be bothered by their spouse's entanglement in sexual sin. It's based on this assumption Paul then comes to the second reason why the withholding spouse should stop withholding sex from their partner. Which is also the second exhortation that he would make to the withholding partner to encourage them to have sex with their spouse. And that's this, exhortation number two. Recognize that your body is not your own. Again, this is the second truth that the withholding spouse needs to recognize the next time they consider withholding themselves from their partner. They need to recognize that their body is not their own. We see this principle bear itself out primarily in verses 3 and 4. But you really see it start as early as verse 2 with this phrase, his own wife, her own husband. Paul says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. No house phrase there, conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Again, I think you can see how Paul is responding in this passage to a potential misinterpretation of what he just said in chapter 6. He just pointed out that whoever joins himself with a prostitute becomes one body with her, while whoever becomes one with Christ becomes one one in spirit with him and he's used this line of argumentation to say that a person shouldn't join themselves to the prostitute since their bodies are members of christ himself one could interpret the next step to be therefore that one shouldn't join themselves even to their own spouse since their bodies belong to christ again this seems to be the logic that paul is anticipating from this abstention party. They're already thinking that it's not good to have sexual relations due to the inferiority of the body. You can only imagine how they're going to interpret things once they realize that while the body does have a use, that it's been sanctified under Christ. They're going to interpret this to mean now I really shouldn't have sex with my spouse since my body belongs to Christ. Paul corrects this misinterpretation by saying, actually, no. If you're married, then there's a sense in which your body actually belongs to your spouse. Now listen, friends, if you really want to give a good whack to the cultural hornet's nest, just go around and say this to people, right? I mean, if there's one thing that's been screamed from the rooftops since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, it's that a person has a right to do what they want with their own body. This is particularly true with respect to women, right? You talk about the feminist movements in the 1970s and women's lib, and this has been a major, major component, casting off the quote-unquote patriarchalism of the past, in part through the liberation of the body. And of course, this has played out most significantly in the area of sexual reproduction, where a woman's right to do what she wants with her body extends so far that she is even free to terminate the life of a child who is depending upon her body for its existence. The idea is practically sacred at this point, that a woman has a right to do what she wants with her own body. But while the focus has been there, this isn't to imply that our society thinks this is only true with respect to women. The whole presumption is that men have always had the right to do what they want with their bodies, and women are just trying to catch up. Equal rights, right? That's the aim. Give women the same rights as men. So both men and women should have the right to do what they want with their bodies. This is the general sentiment of the culture, but is it Christian? We know what the world thinks, but is this what Christ thinks? According to Paul, the answer for the married Christian is no, no, this is not Christian to think that the married Christian has unimpeded rights to their own body. And this is true of both men and women, by the way. So this is not just a one-way street. There's nothing misogynistic or patriarchal about this. Paul is all about equal rights in the sense that both the husband and the wife do not have unimpeded rights to their bodies. Verse 4, right, Paul says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If you're wondering where he gets off saying this the answer comes once again from genesis 2. again back in chapter 6 paul said that the man shouldn't join himself to a prostitute since to do so is to become one flesh with her as it is written the two shall become one flesh verse 16 quoting genesis two twenty four. again the corinthians might be tempted to take this to mean that they shouldn't have sex with their spouse since their bodies now belong to christ by virtue of their spiritual union with him. But what they would miss if they took this position is that the whole point of Genesis 2 is to indicate that in God's eyes, when two people are joined together in marriage, there's a sense in which they're no longer two entities, but one. I'll try to spare you the theological details for why god would arrange marriage this way truth be told even if i tried to do that it'd be a bit speculative but regardless that's the bible's understanding of marriage if you recall this is even the reasoning that jesus gives in matthew 19 when the pharisees ask him for his position on divorce he says that divorce is not a practice that god had designed for man at the institution of marriage and as he explains what he means he says Again, Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female? And he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. There is a joining together of the man and woman in marriage. Such that in God's eyes they're no longer just two entities, but one. This is what Christians believe, based on the teaching of scriptures, based on the teachings of Jesus Christ, and in, and you've seen this reflected historically in Christian marriage vows. With this ring, I thee wed, and all that I am and have, I thee endow. In sickness and in health, in poverty or in wealth, till death do us part. And that is a radical kind of commitment to give all of oneself to another through any and every circumstance and it's based on this notion of union that at marriage the Christian is so uniting themselves to their spouse that they would no sooner abandon them in the face of adversity than they would cut off an arm there's no longer such a thing as your health in my health or your money in my money or your problems and my problems Instead, it's all become our health, our money, our problems. Whatever we're going through, we're in it together. Listen, I can think of very few ideas as beautiful in the human experience as this one, as the notion of Christian marriage, of the union that occurs in Christian marriage between a man and a woman, where each party gives oneself to the other in such a way. And the idea in Genesis 2 is that sex then serves as the physical expression of that union. If I could put it this way, at the first marriage, there doesn't appear to have been an exchange of rings. Instead, the commitment was expressed through consummation, through the joining of their very bodies. That joining of flesh symbolized the union of the couple in this covenant commitment to one another. This is where fornication and adultery become such a tremendous problem for human beings, it's, it's taking an act that for God was to serve as an expression of this very radical and beautiful commitment that one has to another person and it twists it into something else, into something very, very different. It's not just that sexual immorality, in a sense, lies by expressing that union without the requisite covenant to back it up. Indeed, in cases of adultery, it's even performed in violation of that covenant, right? But even worse, sexual immorality takes an act that's meant to symbolize the most sacrificial sort of commitment that one person can make with another, and it utterly perverts it into an act of self-gratification and self-interest. And listen, this is what we do Anytime, anytime we engage in sex simply for our own personal gratification. We're taking an act that's supposed to be an expression of self-sacrifice, of the giving of ourselves to someone else, and we instead make it about us. We take with sex when the point of sex, theologically, is to give I know that probably sounds strange because we are immersed in a culture that's obsessed with the idea of self, and that thinking is so trickled down into every nook and cranny of its thinking that even sex is referred to in terms of one's own personal freedoms, that that we should be free to explore our own sexual desires. And so we tend to think of sex as something that's there primarily to please ourselves. Sex is regarded as good or bad based on whether we personally were gratified by the experience. But this is not the biblical notion of sex. This is not the Christian idea of sex. For us, sex is an expression of the union that's made in marriage. And in this, it's an expression of commitment. And this means that for us, sex is primarily about the other person, not ourselves. This is what Paul is working with here in chapter 7. He's taking this notion of union that's outlined in places like Genesis 2, and he's telling the Corinthians who want to say, I shouldn't have sex with my spouse because my body belongs to Christ, he's saying to them, well, no, actually, because there's a sense in which if you're married, then your body actually belongs to your spouse. That's the commitment you made when you got married. So then what about what Paul wrote in chapter 6, right? He just said that our bodies are members of Christ by virtue of this other union that we enjoy with Christ by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He just indicated that this is his body, not mine. So how can Paul now imply that my body belongs to my spouse? Here's where I think the notion of marriage and sex becomes even more amazing and beautiful. You remember how in our first exhortation I said that you must recognize that withholding yourself opens your spouse up to sexual temptation but what do you think Christ thinks of you using his members to ease the suffering of one of his other members in their fight to keep themselves pure and dedicated to him you see your spouse is ultimately responsible for their own purity they don't get to blame anyone else whether they remain faithful to Christ by using their body for his glory is something that they're responsible for not you But understand that for some this is a fight that's not an easy thing for them to go through this side of the fall the body malfunctions it sends information to the brain that isn't always reliable that isn't to say that sexual urges are unnatural they're not that they're very natural and yet the body can still urge the Christian onto actions that are not honoring to God. It malfunctions in that sense by encouraging the Christian to do things that are not pleasing to God. The Christian is still responsible to control that urge and resist that temptation, but understand that fight can be so intense that it's almost painful. In just a couple of verses, Paul is even going to refer to it as a kind of burning. That's why I use words like suffering, (laughs) suffering. with respect to this fight against sexual temptation. I'm not being melodramatic. I'm taking my cues from Paul. That's how intense this fight can be for some people. What the Christian spouse is able to do is ease that fight by giving themselves to their partner. Do you think that Christ is pleased or displeased with that use of his members? I think we can see how he would be displeased when a Christian takes his members and gives them to a prostitute, since to do that is to take his members and use them as an expression of self-gratification. I mean, right? No man visits a prostitute because he loves her. She doesn't receive payment because she loves him. The whole thing is transactional. Each is using the other to serve themselves, or at least that's the case where the prostitutes engage in prostitution freely, right, by your own choice. To take the body and use it in that kind of a union is to use it for something other than what Christ intends. But to use it to serve one's spouse? And that within this covenant commitment, which we know from Ephesians 5, serves as a kind of reflection of the love that Christ has for His church, that's not to use the body in a way that dishonors Christ. Quite the opposite. Instead, I think you can see something very gospel-esque in all of this. Think about it. Through sex, I am able to give my very body for my spouse's sanctification, just as Christ did for my justification, sanctification, glorification. This isn't going to be something that runs counter to Christ. Instead, it serves as the very picture of Christ. It is Christ lived out among his people, the spirit of Christ working through the members of Christ. You know, it's sort of funny. As I was uh, discussing this passage with my wife last week, uh, there was this moment where I was explaining the implications of what Paul is saying about how we're supposed to use our bodies in marriage uh, when the light bulb sort of went on for her. And she said to herself, Wow, why would anyone get married? <laughs> I'm not really sure I was supposed to take that personally, right? Uh, but I told her at the time, I'm like, No, yes, that's right. You're getting it. That's exactly it. That's exactly what the disciples said to Jesus, right? Once they got what he was saying in Matthew 19. To which Jesus said, not every man... Or Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Just so you know, it's that saying that the Corinthians are wrestling with here in 1 Corinthians 7. Again, I'll try to touch on this more in a couple of weeks, when Paul is, is talking about, now the, the Lord says this, not me, and I say this, not that, That's, uh, or, or not him. Uh, That's all coming from the fact that Paul is giving additional instruction about marriage on top of what Jesus said personally. And this seems to be where this instruction is pulling from. It's being pulled from a passage like Matthew 19. And some are going, it's better not to get married. It's better to be a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. This is really a thought that we're supposed to uh, be thinking of, wrestling with once we grasp what Paul is saying here. Again, marriage is a radical commitment. (laughs) It's giving all of yourself to another person, even including your body. So, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone make this kind of a commitment? The answer, my friends, is love. It's love. They do it not for themselves, not because of what they gain out of it. But for the one that they commit to, what they gain out of it. And this kind of love, it flows out of the gospel. And this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. You know how I keep saying that in order to understand this passage, you really have to look at it from a completely different angle than what you're going to find in the world. Well, this is what I'm talking about. The world has trouble understanding passages like this because it has trouble understanding love. It has trouble grasping what real love looks like. I'm not saying it can never happen, but it has a hard time. At present, the general sentiment seems to be That love is more of something that's very transactional in nature. You make me feel something, and I make you feel something, so let's get together and then let's stay together as long as we're both feeling that something. The reason the world thinks this way is because it's growing increasingly out of touch with the gospel. The Christian, on the other hand, they have no trouble grasping a passage like this one. And the reason is because they believe the gospel. Meaning, they believe the fact that their body is not their own. Since it's been bought by the blood of Christ, and that Jesus purchased their body at a great cost, that if Jesus had done nothing to redeem their body, then it would be destroyed eternally in hell. And it's because Jesus purchased their body, and because they're so grateful for him, or to him, for their redemption of their bodies, that they eagerly give their bodies to Christ. And because they believe what the scriptures say about marriage, they therefore understand that one way that they can express their love for Christ practically is by using their bodies for the blessing and sanctification of their spouse. Do you understand? The Christian wife gets to serve Christ by serving her husband. And the husband gets to serve Christ By serving his wife he gets to tell her i love you wife and i don't want you to fall i want you to keep your heart and body pure i want you to say devoted to our savior jesus christ because of how grateful i am to him for my salvation and so if i can help you in this way by relieving some of the pain that you carry in this fallen flesh and bear that burden with you in your fight against sin i'll gladly do it This all flows out of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. I think of Philippians 2, where Paul urges the Philippians to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than themselves, to look out not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others, saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, before then going on describing how Christ himself lived this way in coming to earth to die for our sins. So, if you're sitting here this morning and you're the withholding spouse, this is what I want to encourage you with. If you're struggling to engage your spouse and you're not sure how to fix the hesitation that you're feeling, I'd encourage you to start by recognizing that sex isn't something you have to do with your spouse. It's something you get to do for your spouse. And you get to do this as an expression of Christ-like love for them out of the gratitude that you have for Jesus Christ. Don't approach this so much from the perspective of obligation. Yes, I know that's how Paul talks about this here in this passage. He refers to the man having his own wife and the wife having her own husband. He speaks of the wife not having authority over her own body, nor the husband having authority over his. He says, do not deprive, literally stop defrauding one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. The language here is very much presented with this note of obligation. But I want you to understand he says this, not as the other partner making a demand of you saying, give me what's owed me in order to fulfill my desires. He says it rather as a friend, reminding you of the commitment you made to your spouse to love, cherish, and honor them. He says it as one who assumes that based on your relationship with Christ, you already understand that sacrifice isn't something you must do. It's something that as a Christian, you believe you get to do. It's something that you want to do in service to the Lord Jesus Christ in an expression of gratitude for his great love. So I think this is really how you should look at this. It's not that you must have sex with your spouse. It's that you get to have sex with them. You get to love them in this way. And just so you know, I think what you'll find as you look at intercourse in this way is that it really can be enjoyable there really is a pleasure that the Christian can take in sex even when they perhaps find the physical act itself uninteresting or unfulfilling because regardless of their own personal physical experience it's still a way they get to serve it's still a way they get to love and they can find joy and pleasure in that so if that's you here this morning struggling with those thoughts I pray that God would grant you the faith you need to love your spouse with your body Let's pray.